Father, we pray that uh, this time would be a sacred time. We pray that um, you would empower me, allow me uh, clarity, conciseness, uh, wisdom, um, that you would give me uh, words that uh, communicate your truth with very familiar verses and concepts and names. I feel like we can sometimes um, miss the the real meaning. And uh, in times of crisis, in times of suffering, in times of plenty, we, we can overlook your goodness. And I pray that this will be a time where we do look at these um, this passage in, in First Peter and that you would uh, speak in ways that um, only you can, that you would allow this message to be used um, even beyond uh, my hopes and prayers. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's turn to First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, and we will start in verse number 4. First Peter 2, verse 4. Reading, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, <clears throat> and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. When P Peter first met Jesus, Jesus gave him a nickname. It's interesting, and on the way here I was asking the kids in the car if they've ever met someone who, upon meeting them, um, like if I were to say, hi, my name is Tim, and uh, Josh said, hey, Timmy. Um, and he immediately, I mean, upon first meeting, he assigned me a nickname. There's different ways to receive that. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever met somebody like that who cannot say your name the way you want it or the way you gave it to them. Sometimes it grows on you. Sometimes it's appreciated. Um, straight out of grad school, I was working at an engineering firm that had a machine shop. And so um, that's where I really learned to appreciate these guys. They were mostly retired doing this on the, on the side. But, you know, drill presses and CNC machines, grinders, um, saws. It was. I was scared to go in the machine shop, but they were real wizards with that. And um, this is in North Carolina, so there's a guy named Vern, a guy named Dave, a guy named Jimmy. There's always a guy named Jimmy. Um, but they uh, called each other like um, Vernie Bob, Jimmy Bob, and uh, Dave Bob. And then one day they started. You know, I came in with some drawings for them to make something for me. And um, they said, hey, Timmy Bob. And uh, it was a, a very much an honor for me to receive that nickname. It, did, it wasn't upon first meeting me, but I had to earn it. And there were other, other people with more like, degrees like me who they did not add the honorific Bob to the end of it. They never. So then I really appreciated being called Timmy Bob. 
Um, there are other nicknames I've had through um, through my life. Um, some people pronounce my last name Sui, and so a um, a natural nickname would be Chop. That that went. I don't know if Chop Suey is a thing anymore. It was real big in the 70s in the East Coast, Midwest. Probably still some Chop Suey restaurants. Um, um, my middle name is Wei, W-E-I, and I have a friend in college who uh, just started calling me Way Cool, which is a, not a bad nickname either. Um, but anyway, nickname. So when Jesus met Peter, uh, if we look in the, um, when Jesus named Peter, he met him. And if you remember the call of Peter, he, he was called Simon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He, Andrew, brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Interesting. I mean, we, I think over the years, over the generations, thousands of years, we just you know, know his name is Peter. But it's a unique thing. And I, I bring it up here because this name Cephas, which means Peter, actually has the meaning, as many of you may know, it means rock. Peter's name means rock. And it's very interesting. The overriding theme of these four verses, these five verses that we're looking at today in First Peter, have a very strong theme of stone, of cornerstones, of rocks. It's notable, it's notable um, that Peter, who is nicknamed Rock, who is given that name by Jesus, does not give himself any special notice in this passage. This is just a parenthetical thought. He gives not one hint that this passage is about himself, despite what the Roman Catholic Church might say about Peter being the foundation of the church, that Peter was the first pope and that Jesus said he would build the church on Peter. In this passage where Peter talks about a chief cornerstone, a living stone, he makes not one reference to himself and his name. So I would invite us to join Peter today in focusing on what God's inspired word says about Jesus about Jesus, the living cornerstone of our salvation. So my first major point is Christ is our living stone. Uh, Throughout Scripture, as Josh um, very providentially pointed us to today, there's many references of stone and cornerstone. I'm actually not using the passage that Josh read. I wish I could tell you we planned that so we could compliment each other, but it was just providential um, that Josh uh, took us to Psalm 118. We see all the way back in the Pentateuch that Deuteronomy refers to God as the rock of salvation. King David, the psalmist, refers to God frequently in 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 89, Psalm 95, Psalm 118, and other places as God, the rock of my salvation. The dominant image in this passage today is Christ as a living stone. If you recall, last week Joseph showed us that we should put away what is bad, that we should crave that which is good, and we should taste the goodness of God. We continue in this passage with a change in imagery. Peter changes us from babes who are craving milk to Christ as a living stone, and as a preview, believers as living stones as well. But there's a beautiful, strong correlation with the Old Testament passage that we read last week. Last week we read from Psalm 34, and we, we um, in, in, during the, the worship, the, the musical part of our um, service before the message, and we read, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But if you look earlier in that passage, uh, the tasting 
of what the Lord is, the tasting that the Lord is good, there's a sweet connection now that true believers will come and see and seek the Lord. Our passage in First Peter opens with the words, as you come to him, a living stone. And look back in uh, Psalm 34, verses 4 and 5. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. We're going to run into that phrase in our passage today as well. So uh, in, in alliance with, in alignment with Psalm 34, we're going to move on to tasting, but also now seeking and coming to the Lord. We're shifting metaphors from being infants to now growing in salvation as stones that are brought together in a divine building project. And at the very core of that building project, at the very essence of that, of that spiritual structure, is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. I really, really enjoy how Peter and, and other masterful um, speakers I've heard, you know, even modern day folks, how, how they can see, how they've studied and devoted themselves to studying God's Word. So they see how Old Testament texts reinforce. This is an excellent example. And so we're going to dip frequently back into the Old Testament. I have all the passages up here, but I would encourage you. It's, it's so neat to see how prophecy, how statements about Christ in the Old Testament tie together. First Peter um, the Apostle Peter references them for his audience because he knows they're familiar with it. And he knows that maybe this, this verse that they learned as children, this, this law that they learned, this Old Testament passage that they learned as children, will, they'll have a eureka moment. There's like, this is talking about Christ. This is talking about the Messiah. And I hope that we have some of that too, these, these verses that are very familiar to us. So let me point out four ways that, um, that Christ... The living stone is, is described here. He is the cornerstone. He is a, a living stone. He is the rejected stone. And he is the chosen stone. So first of all, what is a cornerstone? Um, I'm going to take us back to some of the, I'm calling them source passages that Peter refers to. First of all, back in Isaiah chapter 24. Um, Isaiah is prophesying and God is speaking to the rulers of Jerusalem. And the rulers of Jerusalem are scoffing. They're scoffing at their need for God. And we see this in these first two verses. Uh, Isaiah says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We've made a covenant with death. With Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. God replies to them that they, you're going to need shelter. The, the falsehoods that you're trusting in are going to fail to protect you. The cornerstone has special meaning in this passage. And, and I am not a craftsman. I know there are folks in the in this room, I know Dan does stuff, that Bruce does stuff, Doug does everything. Um, 
the, the, what, what is the purpose of a cornerstone? So I found I have a leftover rock in our in our yard. A cornerstone, if, and I think the, the example that that's that's really heavy. The, the example that you might that might resonate with most of us. <laughs> if you have a pile of rocks in your yard, perhaps at some point in your life you've been um, inspired to build a, a wall, a retaining wall. Um, if you were to build a wall with something like this, a square, and actually it's got little ridges that make it fit into other with other bricks, um, it's not that hard. But if you were to have a stone, a pile of rocks like this, um, figuring out how to pack these together, and then maybe having rocks like this, and this is the end of my rock collection, um, you know, if you have stones that you're putting together in a wall, fitting them together is a task. Um, I, I just Googled, because that is a source of all wisdom, I Googled how to build a retaining wall, and they all talk about starting with a cornerstone, something that has 90-degree angles, if possible. And we can look in verse number 17, and for carpenters or builders, I think it has special meaning. I will make justice the line. I will make righteousness the plumb line. Today we have levels. We have laser levels. We have things that shoot lines. You, you have string. I think string is actually a, probably an old-fashioned sort of way to build a wall. But when you have a cornerstone, you know the direction of the course of rocks. You know that if you start to get off from it, you can tie a string at this corner, shoot that line, and make sure that you're still in line with um, the, the tested, with the true, with the trustworthy cornerstone. This passage introduces us to a very important truth about salvation. That seeking shelter, seeking peace, seeking salvation in any other building or structure, any other source of salvation other than that which is built on the sure foundation of Christ, other than that which is built on the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ, that this is a false hope. And there is no salvation outside of Christ. He is the cornerstone. But not only is Jesus the foundational, true, dependable, tested, absolutely trustworthy cornerstone, Peter and the rest of the Scripture also describe Jesus as the living stone. In verse 4 of, of, of 1 Peter 2, it says, As you come to him, a living stone, a living stone, now, that's quite the oxymoron, isn't it? I, th- I think those of us who have grown up in church and we have heard this reference to Christ a lot may tend to just gloss over it. A living stone. Stone, out of all things in our world, stone is the least alive, is it not? I mean, I was trying to think of something that's hard like that, that um, maybe coral. And I, I don't even know much about marine biology, but I think coral, as it dies, it gets brittle and rock-like. But stones are not alive. But Jesus is a living stone. And the most important part of the redemptive plan of salvation that God ordained from before the beginning of the earth is that Jesus has power over death. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is not stone cold dead. Jesus is not mortified. Jesus is alive and he is the living stone through which believers gain life, as you can see in verse 5 of our passage. Verse 5 says, you yourselves are like living stones. Through Christ, 
we have life. Peter is reminding us again that Jesus overcame death. The last time I spoke, it's been about a, a month or maybe longer, I remember saying the greatest unstoppable power over us here on earth is death. Death is sure. Death is the thing that many people fear. But let us not take it for granted. Let us remind ourselves, as Peter is reminding us, that Jesus overcame death for us. In his death and in his resurrection, he not only sealed our salvation, but he demonstrates to us that this power over death is working in us and through us for his glory. O death, where is your sting? Indeed, as our pastor Joseph is fond of saying, death, where is your sting? Jesus is our living cornerstone. Jesus is also the rejected stone. We read it in the, in the passage in Psalm. We read it in Isaiah. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders. So the stone over there, the, the pinkish one that's not man-made, I think, it, it's, it would be one, if you were building a wall and you had the choice, you would reject that one and you would choose this one. There are some stones that you would deem to be inappropriate to start a wall on or to, to, to put in your structure. And Jesus is referred to frequently as a stone that was rejected by the builders. Now, who are the builders? And let's go to our author here, Peter. He has some, some rip-roaring messages in early Acts. Let's turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and that is a small font, but um, Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. This is a message that Peter and John have been healing people. And the council of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, are critical of them because they preached a resurrected Christ. They preached of the living stone. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter, uh, Jesus himself referenced himself as the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So here, the builders would be the religious establishment, those who were not following Christ, but those who were rejecting him and rejecting his message. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not, we read in John chapter 1. Jesus was rejected by the wise rulers of the world. Jesus faced persecution. Jesus faced rejection. Jesus faced ultimate death at the hands of the builders. But that did not thwart God's building plan. That did not stymie. That did not mess up 
God's plan. Jesus was still set in place as the chosen and precious cornerstone. The stone that the wise of the world rejected has become the cornerstone. So Jesus faced rejection, but in spite of that, it's as if it had no effect. He still was and is our cornerstone. Jesus is also chosen and precious, the chosen stone. In verse number 4 of 1 Peter 2, we see Christ is the living stone who is rejected by men. In the sight of God, He is chosen and precious. If you flip back, or if you swipe back to 1 Peter chapter 1, how does this book open? Who is he writing to? He says, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. The same God that said, you've been chosen by me. He also is emphasizing here in chapter 2 that his son has been chosen and is precious. The truth of God sovereignly setting his redemptive plan in place is a strong, repetitive message in First Peter. And we should remember why. We should ask ourselves why. I would submit to you that the reason that it's repeated that God is sovereign, that God chooses, that God establishes, that God ordains, the reason it's emphasized is because it undergirds the very essence of how we are to respond to suffering. God's sovereignty is the bedrock foundation of the reason that we can have hope. For those here who have gone through suffering um, that comes to mind, I believe you can testify to that fact, that if you were to believe in a God that was out of control, that things were happening that maybe caught him by surprise, that the attacks of the deceiver were somehow you felt like maybe Satan was winning, isn't it true? Can you not give testimony to the fact that understanding and grasping and holding on to the sovereignty of God is something that enables you to have hope, enables us to have hope in dire times. In First Peter chapter 1, to emphasize this point that God chose Jesus to be the cornerstone, verse 20. We've, we've looked at this passage a few weeks ago. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He being Jesus. He was foreknown, but He was made manifest in the last times for your sake, for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Although God had only recently revealed His Son to the original readers of this letter, God wanted to assure them through Peter that Jesus had been chosen as the cornerstone from the beginning. He was chosen for this purpose, to be the cornerstone, and nothing would thwart God's plans. Not the attack of the serpent in the garden. Not the great evil in the earth that led to the flood. Not the attacks of the nations throughout the centuries on God's people. Not the murder of Christ by the Jews and the Romans. Not the rejection of Jesus by the, as the Messiah and the attempts to discard the cornerstone, none of these things would hinder God's chosen purpose established before the foundation of the world. So in this passage, we are seeing this image, a strong image of a building project that God is undertaking. It has two perspectives, though. One is that based on the chief cornerstone, God is building 
for believers who have a relationship with that living cornerstone. The other project is being undertaken by the builders who have discarded the cornerstone. They're using other stones to build. And those are those, those people, those things that are being built are unbelievers who do not have a relationship with the cornerstone. Those who do not believe are also part of a building project. But first, let's look at this first building project, that of believers. The believer's relationship to the living stone, I want to emphasize four points. There is no shame. There is life. There is purpose. And there is rejection. First of all, Peter tells us in verse number 6 of chapter 2, whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. He quotes uh, Isaiah 28, Psalm 34 have, have themes like this. I've, uh, this passage in Joel chapter 2 is, is, is a wonderful passage and encouraging. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. A loving father is telling his people that they should praise him for he will care for them. He will provide for them. He will dwell among them and they shall never again be put to shame. Put yourself in the, in the minds of the hearers of Joel and also in First Peter. Surely this message had to gain some traction with them. Surely it had to mean something because in the Old Testament, the followers of God were put to shame many times through slavery, through bondage. We know that in First Peter, the setting of this letter, it's being written to scattered people who have lost much, who have lost status. To follow after Christ was in no way a good idea by earthly standards. People who have lost family, comfort, they've lost their inheritance. They have no inheritance here on earth because of their belief in God and following after Christ. Belief in Christ brought shame on earth. And God is assuring them that believing in the chief cornerstone will not bring them to shame eternally. Verse 7 goes on to say, They will indeed receive honor and not shame. We would do well to pause for a moment and, and try to apply this truth. Now, we may not lose all. We may not be kicked out of a subdivision or an apartment complex because we are followers of Christ. But is it true that we often live our lives, maybe even subconsciously, and before we take an action, before we say a word, before we write something down, we ask ourselves the question, how will this make me look? If I do this, if I say this, if I type this, text it, will I be seen as strange? <clears throat> I was reading about, um, there's an author named Ted Cluck. He's written a book, uh, Why We're Not Emergent, Why We Love the Church. A uh, number of sports-related books. I didn't realize he'd cranked one out about Jeremy Lin. He has a book out about uh, RG3. Um, so he's a sports-related writer, but he's a, a, a believer, a strong believer. And he was talking to a book agent. And the book agent said, you know, you should have a CV, a resume that doesn't list all your Christian stuff. Because sometimes in the publishing world, if you're seen as a Christian writer, you're not going to be chosen to write. It may hinder his ability to write sports-related books. And, uh, you know, Ted Cluck is wrestling with what does it say to have a one CV that's, you know, religious-based and another that is purely secular. 
know, in, in my arena of occupation with engineering, sometimes, you know, I don't know when this started, resumes list hobbies. You know, people, I guess it's to show that you're not that weird. You know, engineers are all a little bit different, physicists even more so. But um, uh, this is just an unwarranted shot at Josh. But, um, you know, you list hobbies. Now, do you list in your hobbies things like rugby, um, sewing, gardening, spending time with family? Do you list, you know, serving in my church? Or do you think, you know, how will that make me look? You know, we, we don't live in a society that we lose significant amounts of status, that we would not have our bank accounts um, taken over, that we would not have our houses repossessed because we claim the name of Christ. But still, is it not true that we sometimes consider, or maybe frequently consider, how will this make me look? Jesus is saying, believe in me, the cornerstone, and you will not be put to shame. The believer's relationship to the cornerstone is also one of life. Peter is sure to tell them that we, as we come to him, we ourselves are like living stones. I already said that Jesus, the cornerstone, overcame death. He gained life. And through him, through our relationship with the chief cornerstone, we also gain life. Through his resurrection, we are raised up. He has conquered death, and so too do we conquer death. And what a comfort this should be to us. So the believer, his relationship to the cornerstone is that he will not be put to shame. He will be made alive. And he is also made a living stone for a purpose. These stones here are laying somewhat randomly about. But the living stones that we have become as believers in Christ are not isolated stones put on a rubble pile. I was trying to think of a, um, an analogy that would, well, at least help me grasp, that Jesus is the cornerstone, and he's alive. And so in my head, I have this cornerstone. Um, I feel like I've seen a toy like this that's lit up, almost like a Lego piece, like a big Lego piece that's lit up. And as you bring another piece, another block next to it and touch it, it also comes alive. The closest thing I could think of is light bright. Is that the, is that the thing where you have a big light and you plug things in, and as you do, they come to life? Um, if anybody invents a toy like Legos that light up, I get a part of that because I just came up with the idea here. But we are being built for a purpose, not just saved to be living stones, living isolated. We are being put together. The Verse 5 Look at verse 5 in Second Peter. It says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. The word for house, and all the Greek scholars are cringing because here I go, the word for house is oikos. It has several meanings. It can refer to a building where a spiritual deity would dwell, like a temple. Oikos can mean a temple. It can also mean any dwelling place. It can mean a family, a household. And here in verse 5, where it's followed by the words, you're a holy priesthood, it kind of connotes a very flexible meaning that it's both a structure, a spiritual house, but it's also the people who dwell in that structure. In the Old Testament, God dwelt in a tent. What do we call that? The tabernacle. Then God dwelt in the temple that Solomon built. And then a, the renovated temple that, that Herod uh, rebuilt. But in the New Covenant, where does God live? Does He live in these buildings? 
Does he live in a building down on Elam Young? No, he lives and dwells with his people. Believers are living stones that are both the building structure in which God dwells, connected through Christ, the living cornerstone, to other believers as stones. But believers are also a community household where we serve as holy priests, offering acceptable spiritual sacrifices to God. And we can see the fluidity and meaning of this word oikos, of being both a structure and also priests, of being people that dwell, that make up that structure. And then Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are not saved to be in isolation. We are saved to be put in place, to be set in place like stones in a garden wall, studs in a wall of a house, beams in a house. We are to be connected to each other and connected to Christ, the chief cornerstone. Believers have this relationship with the cornerstone, not only for life, not only for a purpose, not only that they will not experience shame, but also to experience rejection. It's a little bit counterintuitive. There is no shame, but there is rejection. You see, the very nature that gives believers as living stones the, ver- the life of that stone is due to their connection with the living stones. Their nature is shaped from the living stone. So what he has experienced, so will the other stones experience. Christ Jesus was rejected, and so believers also will be rejected. Christ Jesus was resurrected, and so too will believers be resurrected from the dead. Believers will face rejection and suffering. This is a surety. It should also be comforting, however, if we consider, as we are to consider in an eternal perspective, in our identification with Christ, our very election as living stones is confirmed through the rejection and suffering that we may face. Those examples that I just talked about that I was just kind of really open with you about do I let someone at work know, in my street know like where we go all the time, you know, that we are involved in a church and tell them more about church. Um, or, or is that just I don't want that social stigma it should be comforting to me to know that if I do identify myself as a follower of Christ and I am rejected, it's nothing new. It's because I am a living stone connected to the living cornerstone. These misfortunes, this rejection that we may face, they don't indicate that God has forgotten us. They don't indicate that God has been stymied by the attacks of Satan. Peter again assures them they will not be put to shame, but they will be rejected. There is one more building project referenced in this passage besides the building project that is made up of believers connected to the living cornerstone. Jesus is not merely the cornerstone of the spiritual house for those who believe, but he is the pivotal figure. If I could use this term, he is the touchstone for every person's ultimate destiny. So let us look at the unbeliever's relationship to the cornerstone. Verse 8 of our passage says that the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the living stone, has also become 
a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, Jesus as the cornerstone is either to be believed or to be rejected. Jesus is either to be built upon or to be stumbled over. And Peter's source text is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. But who are they who stumble? How do they stumble and what's the consequences of their stumbling? If we look back in Isaiah, you can take by implication or by context, the leaders of Israel, you know, remember the people who made the agreement with death and the, uh, you know, they were relying on their treaties with Sheol to, to protect them. The leaders of Israel are those who stumbled over that cornerstone, which was a messianic prophecy of Christ. In Acts, when we looked at Peter's message, he addressed the ruling religious leaders, and he did not pull any punches. He did not let them read between the lines. He said, you, you are the ones who discarded the cornerstone, and you reject and you stumble over the cornerstone. But here in First Peter, in this letter from that same man who preached in, in, the, in Jerusalem in, in the early Acts, this author is saying the class of stumbling rejectors has expanded. All humans, male or female, Jew or Greek, Anyone who does not believe in Christ is stumbling over the cornerstone. How do they stumble? That was my last slide. How do they stumble? The rejection takes the form of unbelief and disobedience. Look to verse number 8. After that quote from the Old Testament says, They stumble because they disobey the word. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We can see in context, even later in First Peter, that the word is the gospel message. They disobey the gospel and thus they stumble. But wait, you might say that's not what we normally say. We don't disobey the gospel. That's, that's a mix-up, Tim. You're using the wrong verb. So here we go back into Greek, fraught with caution. The word for disobey in verse 8 is apitheo, apitheo, which means, the meaning is always more important than pronunciation, which means to refuse or withhold obedience, to refuse belief and obedience. This word in Greek has, it has joined together both terms of believing and obeying. You see, you know, in our language, to disobey doesn't mean that you don't believe. But scripturally, spiritually, these people who are stumbling are both disobeying and not believing the Word of God. Unbelief is disobedience. And in so doing, the unbelievers are rejecting the cornerstone. One commentator wrote very eloquently, and I'll try to do it justice here. Christ as a stone is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with Christ, each person is changed, one for salvation and another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about their daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters Jesus is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone, or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin, falling short of one's creator and redeemer, and therefore 
of one's destiny. The consequences for rejecting the cornerstone are indeed dire. The consequences are destruction, eternal separation from God, eternal punishment. These are real things. We do not speak of eternity as a metaphor. Just like the rejection of Christ by the builders did not in any way hinder the placement of Christ as the chief cornerstone, just because they discarded Him, just because they threw Him away, did not in any way hinder God's redemptive building plan. Neither does a person's rejection of Christ in any way mitigate the consequences. Rejecting Christ and not believing in Him does not remove the consequences just because one may not believe in Him. To reject Christ is to embrace destruction. To disobey and proceed in unbelief is to choose eternal destruction and separation from God. This second building project will crumble like the shell of a building that's been constructed through falsehoods, inferior materials, corrupt contractors, and a foundation of, sh- of shifting sand. There may be those here who are not yet believing in Christ. Not just believing that He existed as a person, but believing in Him as the only path to God. There may be those here who are not believing that Christ is the only hope for salvation from the eternal punishment for sins. That Christ is the only mediator that can help to reconcile sinful man, sinful boy, sinful girl, sinful woman to God. Please hear me. Please don't hear this oratory which has faults and flaws. Please don't be deceived by our small numbers and what God has given us. Don't be deceived that this is not of utmost eternal importance. Kids, I'm burdened for you. This is not something to take lightly. And and I, I believe we have good kids here that are wanting to obey their parents and and trying to live in a harmonious household. But following after Christ is not something anyone should do just to please parents. We must all come face to face individually with this cornerstone. We must decide whether we will accept or reject. The living stone, the cornerstone, does not change. is not altered at all whether we follow and believe in Him or whether we try to discard Him and build our own lives. He does not change, but the choice that we make as human beings has eternal consequences. For the believer, I want to conclude by leaving us with the continuing thought that God is sovereign in all things. This truth permeates this passage and permeates this book. We open with verse number 4, as you come to Him a living stone, but chosen by God and precious. Speaking of God's four ordaining, a predestination of God um, having Jesus as the cornerstone. But we close in verse 8 with a more dire statement of God's sovereignty. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We've also highlighted that Jesus was set as the cornerstone before the foundation of the world. We believers and readers of First Peter were elect and chosen. These are themes that are to comfort us in suffering as they did thousands of years earlier to the first readers. You may be considering that phrase in verse 8, as they were destined to do. Is this not a provocative passage, a provocative statement? 
Did Peter mean that those who stumbled in disbelief, they had no choice? That God forced them to disobey? That God forced them to have unbelief and therefore to stumble and be broken, destroyed? In Tom Schreiner's commentary on 1 Peter, he explained it well. And I want to try to paraphrase some of this and explain it because it was very helpful to me. We may be tempted to take the interpretation that Peter in this statement is merely stating that God appointed that if people did not believe, then they would stumble and fall. That's a little easier to grasp. But the reality is that God also appointed, God also determined that they would not believe and that they would stumble. So let's go deeper because that's a provocative statement as well. First of all, in the Old Testament, and I can give you passages later, but the idea that calamity comes from God is clearly taught in the Old Testament. Passages and lamentations in Amos and Isaiah say things like, quote, from the mouth of the Most High, both calamities and good things come. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? I bring prosperity and create disaster, says God. We know that God is sovereign in all things, from the heart of the king being in his hand to the most vicious, cruel, evil act in history, the murder of Jesus. This most cruel act was predestined by God, according to the Scriptures, was it not? And even though we believe that God ordains all things, at the same time, We can never exempt human beings from responsibility. In Peter's blistering sermons in early Acts, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, he holds those responsible for killing Christ. He holds them responsible even though we know that the rest of Scripture says it was predestined by God. Peter did so because in killing Christ, this is important, in killing Christ, those people carried out their own desires. No one killed Christ against their will. So similarly here, Peter is saying those who stumble and fall, they do so because of their own choice not to obey. Their own choice not to believe. Human beings are responsible for their sin, and they sin willingly. And yet, God controls all events in history. Even in unbelief, man is not sovereign. I'm reading this this paragraph that I wrote, and I know in it are some seemingly contradictory things. But let me speak to you from my heart on this. To my understanding, Scripture, and that's a really important phrase, to my understanding, to my limited understanding, Scripture does not fully resolve to my satisfaction how these two truths come together of human responsibility and of God's sovereign, divine control. But I believe in both of these things. And I personally believe that we may not fully comprehend it on earth. There are things that are left up to God's understanding, and we will not understand that fully in our human limited minds. But that does not alter the truth of God's sovereignty and of man's responsibility. Why does Peter emphasize this so much? Why do I close my message with this seeming parenthetical rabbit chase on God's sovereignty? Because Peter did. You know, if Peter had written that verse and had kind of left out the, as they were destined to do, this whole passage would read a lot nicer, right? 
but he is reminding us that God's sovereignty is the bedrock for all things. God's redemptive plan to make living stones that are built up around and upon his son, the chief cornerstone. God's sovereignty allows me and you and the original readers to know that their suffering and our suffering should serve as kind, gracious reminders of our election as chosen stones. Their rejection and suffering is a birthmark of their connection to the original rejected cornerstone. But praise God, he is the cornerstone even though he was rejected. God's purposes are not thwarted. And suffering that believers face is ordained by God and controlled by God. And we know for a certainty that it will bring him glory. We can take comfort from that. And as believers, we thank God for the life, the purpose, and yes, the shared rejection and suffering that comes from being a living stone with Christ. Father, I pray that this truth from your word would uh, penetrate. So many times today we've, we've read passages throughout your scriptures that speak of the discarded cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. I pray that um, the meaning thereof would have an impact on us. I pray that as we turn now to the Lord's table, we would remember His suffering and His ultimate rejection. That we would rejoice as we remember His triumph over death and how He became the living cornerstone through whom we also can have life. As we proceed now to the table